0: Hey everybody! Today we are going to be discussing Nassim Taleb's book *Anti-Fragile*. Uh, it's part of a, a whole series, uh, an essay that I think he described it on probability and how we can how we fool ourselves. Into believing that we can predict the future, we can predict massive events that have a very small likelihood of ever being uh, predicted, and how we can, how as humans we can actually move into a realm of being um, able to face risks and take risks in a way that's intelligent. And throughout the book, he criticizes. You know, it's a the book is a critique, a social critique. It's also an extremely a fascinating intellectual endeavor in that he maps out um, this big gap that we have as a species, it seems. I think that he went through all the languages and found that no language really had a suitable antonym for the word fragile. You know, like I think in his interviews, he describes you, know, you You get a box and you put glass in it. You're shipping um, glass to somebody overseas and you put fragile on it. But we don't have anything that you would put like likes disorder on it. Like, please shake this box. You know, we don't have any word. And so he came up with the word and it's the title of the book, um, Anti-Fragile. Obviously, he's also the author of The Black Swan and... Um, skin in the game procrustes the,
1: the bed of procrustes the bed of
0: procrustes which is just a lot uh, just a, a lot of aphorisms very witty and poignant he's a very intelligent and very interesting exotic exotic thinker
1: mm-hmm. also fooled by randomness was i think that was the first book in this series that he wrote it fooled by randomness then black swan then this one anti-fragile and then uh skin in the game and then bed of procrustes was somewhere in there mm-hmm. um one comment on that phenomenon of language that he observes in the book the just to get a bit more into the definition. so if you look at the word fragile, it's something that you want to avoid any stressors coming in contact with a, a fragile thing. so if you think about like a small glass ornament or something, something very intricate, you want to put it behind put it in a black in a in a glass case or something. You don't want kids to be around it. You don't want them to be playing with it because a small knock or a drop will break it and break it beyond repair most often. <clears throat> That's what a fragile thing is. That's like what why you say we put fragile on boxes. But what's the opposite of fragile? So he points out that in every, like practically in every conversation, if you ask someone who isn't already familiar with the term, They'll say that the opposite of fragile is robust or, res- or resilient, so something that will withstand shocks and not break because of them. But that's not that's not the case, because for something fragile, it's a, something fragile doesn't like stressors, doesn't like chaos or volatility or randomness. It wants to be shielded from those things. But something that's robust, like a rock or, a, you know, a steel block, that those things they can withstand shocks you know you can take a hammer to them um, oftentimes without breaking them or you know the their toleration of stressors is very high so it takes a lot of effort in order to destroy them but they don't like stressors they don't they don't gain from from uh, from those kinds of events that kind of chaos so the opposite of fragile is something that like you said actually gains something from a stressor. And that's not what robust is. Um, Robust is neutral. So you've got something like um, fragile, which is uh, negative. It doesn't like something. Then you've got neutral, robust things, which can go either way. It's like you can hit them or you cannot hit them, but it doesn't matter to the robust thing. Then you've got this other category of things which actually benefit from disorder, benefit from stress and chaos to some degree. And we don't have a word for that, or we didn't until, you know, Talib came along. But the point that he makes is that even if we a word for it, we understand it, and humans have always understood it, even if they didn't have the words for it. So, it, along those lines, he gives another example just to kind of give the concept of this this ability to do without knowing, because humans can do a lot of things without necessarily knowing why or how, why they do them or why it works, how it works. And one example that he gives is the names of colors. So, in uh, you know, in the typical rainbow, <clears throat> in our culture, it's got seven colors: red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. But he gives the example of some some uh, some research that shows that there are some cultures, some tribes, or I can't remember who exactly, that only have three colors, for instance. And then there's the the now famous phenomenon from ancient Greek literature, that shows that they didn't have a word for blue, for instance. They had a very limited range of color words. And so some people um, at the time this was discovered, I think it was in the 1800s, the, the, mm-hmm. the first guy that really observed this. Mm-hmm. Because like if you look at Homer, for instance, in the Odyssey, the, the sea is described as the wine dark sea. And there's no word for blue. There's no word for the blue sky or the or blue water. Um, which is very strange. There's like light colors and dark colors, and then a few in between, like maybe yellow or, or something like that. But there weren't necessarily all these different colors. But, so so the, the idea, when this was first really popularized, was that maybe human vision had evolved since then, that we couldn't actually see blue back then. We, weren't, we didn't have the ability to see that color. And it's only been in the last um, you know couple thousand years that we've developed the ability to actually see blue. Well, that's actually—it's uh, probably nonsense. What is actually the case is that those like modern cultures that only see three colors, for instance, they have three names for colors. But that doesn't mean they can't distinguish between all the existing colors. If you show them, if they have no word for blue, and you show them blue or two blue things, they'll be able to match the two blue things compared to the two green things, the two orange things, whatever. It's they—it's just that they don't have the the word for it. They can act it out, and they can and they can recognize the the they can distinguish and differentiate between those, but just not name them according to the you know our our seven color convention. And for me, for instance, like I only ever use six colors. I never really understood you know indigo violet. It's like it's blue or it's purple. Like I, I don't see. I you know I can't. Uh, I you know if there's a co- I, I've done color test perception or color perception tests right where you match up colors, and I've got you know i always score really high on them i can distinguish shades of different colors but if you ask me you know what indigo is i'll just say well it's show me a color it's either blue or it's purple you know so i've got six basic colors that i work with and then you know maybe you know i can distinguish or i can name some shades like cyan blue for instance or something like that like but the 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 words kind of don't matter well they do matter in a sense but in the practical realm they don't they don't really matter because we can still act these things out and still recognize them so the some of the principles of anti-fragility have been known well just as long as humans we we tend to understand that living things have this property even though we haven't had a name for it and we um we act in a way that acknowledges the existence of this kind of thing this property we also do things totally ignorantly um, against against this property by kind of imposing our own um, our own beliefs about the nature of things in reality that actually produce fragility mm-hmm. because by not by not recognizing things as anti fragile we actually produce fragility we make things more at risk of falling apart
2: yes well so Taleb t- is a uh, kind of a financial analyst. Um, he used to be a trader. He's a kind of a self-stylized philosopher, and so one of the anecdotes. And by the way, this is a very funny book. Uh, Taleb sprinkles a lot of his uh, explanations with personal experience, analogies, metaphors. So this isn't a uh, this isn't a, a kind of a, a dry intellectual exercise for him. He's he's really quite entertaining. Um, but one of the one of the things that uh, that kind of spurred him on, uh, like you were saying, Harrison, he he's seeing all of this uh, tendency in society and culture and and uh, Western thinking in inducing fragility where it's actually harmful and unnecessary, and so he was at a a kind of a economic conference where a uh, forecaster was giving his predictions for the economy of i think either japan or korea and and predicting the you know projections for uh the next five years so taleb in a in a burst of uncontrollable uh anger and emotion rushes to the stage and says you know to everyone uh, basically, you know, stop predicting things and and foisting this information on people that are so reliant and vulnerable to this information that you can't possibly know with with all the variables involved. And by the way, have you seen this guy's predictions for the past five years or three years? Is he a reliable source of information for past years? So all of this is born out of his own kind of authentic thinking through. Of the problems of uh, the, the types of information that people are getting, and their ability to problem solve and and kind of think forward through their own uh, process of of navigating uh, their own issues on, on multiple uh, in multiple spheres. Uh, so he gets into uh, one of his biggest focus, focuses is in economics and business and finance. Uh, he'll look at, for instance, and mention quite a number of times, the uh, economic recession of 2008, and how everyone says, oh, we couldn't possibly foresee this this thing coming about. And people mistaking um, the causes for these types of events for their real underlying issues so he wants to he wants to help people he wants people to realize that um we you know we've been inculcated with an idea that uh we need to be protect protected from the small stuff um when there are much larger black swans or uh novel um developments or revolutionary developments in the life of an individual, as Jordan Peterson would say, that um, that one can take account for in a certain number of ways. And, uh, you know, one of the points he makes early on in the book is that uh, individuals are, are quite familiar with the idea of post-traumatic uh, stress. But, um, in fact, there is such a thing... Uh, as post-traumatic growth. Uh, that there are stressors and events that, um, as Nietzsche would say, you know, uh, would make us stronger if it doesn't kill you. Uh, that we can make lemonade out of uh, from lemons. Um, so that, that's a lot of the, the kind of angle that he's coming in on and, and trying to impart to people who, uh, who seem overly risk-adverse uh, overly protective of their um, of various things. Mm-hmm. Um, the helicopter parent, for instance, would be one uh, analogy that we could see in, in parenting the you know the kind of overprotective uh, parent who doesn't allow their child to learn from mistakes or get injured from time to time. Where these where these smaller kind of more manageable injuries would assist someone in growing and becoming stronger and learning and possibly applying you know their mistake and their pain towards um a much larger area in their lives where they where they might be vulnerable to injury
0: and i think this is where we have a good tie in for uh, previous shows in our discussion on jordan b peterson's uh, maps of meaning and the known and the unknown um, and all the different ways that, uh, that our society has come to understand and map out the world and how to a large extent we've kind of ruled out mythology, we've ruled out the realm of action as being a legitimate area of study. And it's mostly like he describes it as like this, these Soviet Harvard uh, fragilistas who who think that every can everything can be analyzed and you can predicted understand and, and predicted and controlled. Um, and what he set out to do with these tomes of books, it seems, is to give a map of meaning essentially to the rest of us uh living uh, in a world that i mean just every day you're going to be you're bombarded all of us are bombarded by new predictions all sorts of you know climate change uh predictions economic collapse uh you know viral infections it's Every day there's some sort of, uh, oh, something big, crazy is going to happen. And as Hugh says, you can, you know, we can spend our entire lives trying to predict the the, uh, future with absolute certainty, and that is not going to work. It's not a method that we can actually you know utilize we're never going to be able to statistically prophesize the you know the end of the universe or tomorrow even Um, but what we can do is we can put ourselves in a position where we can measure our fragility and our anti-fragility in a specific scenario so if you have more upswing or upside than downside when exposed to a certain stress any sort of certain you know calamity you are in a, a position to be anti-fragile um you know for example you have to take uh you know like those preppers they have uh, let's say they have cans of food and there's this massive cataclysm and now all of a sudden they are sitting on a you know gold essentially because this food is now gold to them they can eat they can survive or whatever um and so in that situation those individuals are anti-fragile their their um, substantially increased by their own activities, and you can do this. He he has a number of different heuristics that you can implement in order to do that. Basically, in your entire life, you can you can prepare for any kind of. Uh, you know, you can be proactive, basically, is what it is. You don't live in fear. You don't live with predictions like on this day, this is going to happen or this is guaranteed to happen. It's, we can't possibly, um, it makes us more fragile, actually, I think he would say, in order to, in, to live in such a way where you're, you're going by people's predictions, often flawed predictions, and um, black swans are, by definition, unpredictable. Right. And so those are the things, but those are the things that scare us the most are those big events that you know are going to occur but you can't capture them with any statistical uh, sense of certainty but we you know that it's going to happen because it's happened in the past you've had you know world war ii you've had um the 2008 climate crisis you've had commentary bombardments of the planet you know that there are these huge events um, that he he terms black swans, which is almost a little bit too friendly, you know, for the, the kind of ferocity and kind of damage that they inflict. But, um, that is just one aspect of, of the this whole his whole argument, you know this book really builds on all the previous books. He lays out the reasons why, um, you know, black swans aren't predictable and how we kind of f- uh, fool ourselves by thinking that we can predict them. And instead, we need to start seeing uh, that this the world of action. In the world of action, we humans and all and many but most biological systems require some degree of stress and volatility in order to just to survive just to live it's just a biological fact that our bodies need stress in order to uh live Mm
1: -hmm. but it's a certain type of stress right he makes that distinction because well he makes a lot of distinctions because things that are anti-fragile in one sense will be fragile in another. So um, it's really multi-layered and kind of contextual. So, for instance, any individual represent, representative of a species, for instance, can be fragile in comparison to the species, and the species can be fra- uh, anti-fragile in comparison to the individual because the individual can be, you know, is vulnerable. It can die in horrible, in, in innumerable, innumerable, innumerable. <laughs> um horrendous ways mm-hmm. but that has that actually has an advantage um at the species level or at the the whole life system level so the there are distinctions like that and so when it comes to stress there are certain kind of certain kinds of stress that uh that organisms need and then certain kinds of, kinds of stress that are completely toxic so for example he gives the example of um like uh office the 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 whole office climate Working, with, uh, working at this monotonous task with, uh, with a bad boss and just the entire kind of city life um, thing creates all these stresses that actually make us sick and, uh, and die, essentially. But we need stresses of a different kind, and he, he's, he's very kind of pro-paleo in a lot of ways. So, for instance, he doesn't like gyms, and the reason he gives is that gyms are completely artificial. So you have all these workout machines, for instance, where you're, if you're on a, one of those <clears throat> uh, you know, fake bicycles or a treadmill or something, you're running or doing these repetitive movements where each one is exactly the same. Whereas in nature, every step you take is different. So you're constantly, you're constantly encountering this randomness in your environment. And so every step you take affects your your foot and your leg and your body in a different way, and the most natural ways of um, kind of encountering the most the, the most natural way of working out for instance isn't isn't so routine and um, rigid and systematized it's very much well it's more natural it's like you go out into the into the forest and you lift up a rock or a tree or something you don't have barbells in the forest for instance, but the so that's one kind of stressor that that is beneficial for the body talks about um even just working out when you're when you're stressing your body you're you're harming your body you're you're exposing it to a a stress and a threat of some sort you're doing damage to your body and then your body in response overcompensates it says okay i'm going to prepare for this for the next time but i'm going to over overcompensate i'm going to push a little bit harder so that not only will I'd be able to handle that same stressor that I was exposed to, but I'll be able to handle a bigger stressor. So you actually grow strength, and it, you you actually grow strength in that way. You become stronger and able to able to kind of conquer bigger obstacles than you were in the past. So those are the kind of stresses. Well, it's one kind of stress that actually increases your performance because of that that overcompensation. He gives a, a funny example of just the 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 poor use of prediction, for instance, when designing, let's say, uh, a dam or something or anything to do to do with flooding. Yeah, it was to do with flooding. So you have these planners that that look in the past hundred years and pick the biggest the biggest uh, flood that they had in the past hundred years, and they plan for that level, not realizing or not thinking that that previous flood was out of the ordinary. If that previous if the, if the planners of that time had had used the previous biggest flood, they wouldn't have been prepared for the one that was coming up. You have to prepare for more than has been experienced because, like you say, you can't predict black swans. It's not like there's this artificial limit for, for flooding that says, oh, this is the, the most it's ever going to flood because that's what happened 100 years ago or, or 200 years ago. No. That was that one was out of the ordinary. That that's the reason it's the one that you look back on. So you have to plan for the for the unimaginable. Plan for the one you can predict. So you plan for for uh, a flood of much greater proportions than has ever been experienced. Because chances are that's the one. Well, chances are that's the one that's that's that that's the one that if it happens will really set you back. So, um, yeah.
2: Well, that kind of reminds me about his point on centralization and his look at the way that Switzerland functions. Uh, because you know, what Taleb would say is that uh, the, the decentralization of, of Switzerland that um, has these various kind of regional uh, governments that very lightly govern, uh, but that manage to um, take care of all of the considerations of a, of a given area, Uh, fairly productively uh, make it more or less robust and less vulnerable to the systemic um, issues or problems that a very centralized state would have with a very big uh, authoritarian uh, government that might otherwise make bad decisions that affect everybody. Mm -hmm. So he, he's a strong proponent for uh, decentralization where, um, where you you have this kind of autonomous, uh, you know, if if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Essentially, um, and the, there are so many points that he makes. The thing is, I when I was reading this book, he kept qualifying all of his ideas for what being anti-fragile was. He he makes like you said, Harrison. He makes these, you know, he contextualizes. Uh, this idea and he applies it into many spheres and, and something that I really enjoyed about it was the um, he's beseeching his readers to uh, get out of domain dependence or this kind of narrow thinking, you know, you might, you might actually enjoy some amount of anti-fragility in your own life. Uh, You might kind of unwittingly or even consciously or intuitively understand Uh, How you know something works and make the the best use of it at your job or or even just the the economics of Spending energy and and being productive uh, at home if you're at home Uh, but He says that these are these are concepts that you can apply towards any sphere of your life uh, towards the future um in such a way that uh that you are less vulnerable to those black swans or or events that um that would seek to uh or or that would somehow make you more vulnerable to to certain stressors
0: right and then even in the event of a a debilitating event like a black swan something like a negative black swan you could possibly gain from it. But there's also positive black swans that you can you know, kind of hunt down and track. And he uses, uh, really, he has the the barbell uh, to, to think about. He says, use the barbell strategy. So the barbell is clearly, there's no middle ground. It's just all, um, like you're very aggressive, but you're also very paranoid. So an example would be, you know, like 15, 12, 15 years ago, Uh, Let's say that you have a decent job. You are renting someplace. You can afford all your bills. You've got enough money that you can put into savings. And you hear about Bitcoin, right? Now, if you're super, you know, aggressive at the time, they're like, this is going to be the cryptocurrency, blah, blah, blah. You know, you're in on this stuff. Friend told you about it. And if you're super aggressive but not paranoid and you're not applying the anti-fragile, philosophy then you're you you invest a ton of money into it just a ton of money and nothing happens you know it's just years and years and years and it's it's still it's you don't, you don't get you don't see any real payoff your life shambles go just goes out of control you forget your password you end up in <laughs> drugs on the you know but um the barbell approach is to be super aggressive but also be paranoid so what you would do is you know you have like ninety percent of your savings in some very conservative spot, right. and then you take ten percent and you invest that into this very exotic thing. And if there's massive upswing, then you are all benefit. But if there's any downside to it, then you don't. You are still robust. You know, you're still not going to be, you know, shaken to your core, and it's just a matter of course. He he basically advises hunting, like being a, a, a an just a, a participant, a willing participant in life, that you're going out and you're seeking, you're seeking these kinds of things, and you're being strategic about it, and you're living life in a relatively, you know, heroic way, because in one of his books he writes that you know if you if you don't have a heroic bent by your thirties you 've started to die already
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, a couple things on that. I want to get back to the heroes just because it reminded me of a passage in this book but the that the, the example you gave of saving ninety percent and kind of being risky with the ten percent is that that's an example also of skin in the game. So that's an example of a person who, ha- a person who has their own skin in the game because they're investing their own money, basically, and taking a risk for themselves. But one of the things that he's, um, one of his big focuses and one of his big, pet peeves is too small a word for it. One of the things that, you know, that gets his blood boiling, and you can see this on Twitter, is people who not only don't have skin in the game but have other people's skin in the game. And that's one of the reasons he hates um, big governments and centralized governments, is because they're all other people's skin in the game. Mm-hmm. Because there's no there's no potential bad consequence for those individuals. It's all someone else. So, in the financial world, it's investing other people's money uh, in risky endeavors and then um, not having to pay any consequences for losing other people's money. So, and as a trader, he didn't like you know whenever he saw this, he didn't like it. He, he personally took the approach of only only recommending investments that he himself was invested in and and would invest for for himself so that if he if if something bad happened he would suffer along with you know the people that he had recommended these uh, financial moves to so that's a, that's a thing about about having skin in the game is that's kind of a central aspect of morality or or character mm-hmm. and so this Reminds me of uh, this is the quote that reminded me of. He just mentions heroes because he talks about heroes in Skin in the Game, too. But he um, points out that, um, as we discovered during the financial crisis that started in 2008, these blow up risks to others are easily concealed owing to the growing complexity of modern institutions and political affairs. While in the past, people of rank or status were those and only those who took risks, who had the downside for their actions. And heroes were those who did so for the sake of others. Today, the, exa- the exact reverse is taking place. We are witnessing the rise of a new class of inverse heroes. That is, bureaucrats, bankers, Davos attending members of the IAND, International Association of Name Droppers, and academics with too much power and no real downside downside or accountability, and or accountability. They game the system while citizens pay the price. At no point in history have so many non-risk takers—that is, with no personal exposure—exerted so much control. The chief ethical rule is the following: Thou shalt not have anti-fragility at the expense of the fragility of others. That's kind of one of his core, um, yeah, his core ethical um, positions that shows itself in all his books, and just a bit on Talib, like I mentioned. If you see him on Twitter. Um, <laughs> he's quite uh, pugnacious, I think. Like, if you read his Twitter, he, he's constantly calling people out and swearing at them and uh, and insulting people. But the thing about him is is that he's only insulting people, for the most part, as far as I've been able to tell, that kind of deserve to be um, um, called out and insulted. It's, like, the, if you look at the, the people that he attacks, he he doesn't like frauds. He doesn't like, you know, bankers like a... In this quote bankers bureaucrats um, Monsanto interventionists in foreign mm-hmm. policy matters um, he most of the most of his targets pretty much deserve it and so he, and he's coming from a position where he can he's got what he calls like f u money in the sense that he's not he's not beholden to anyone, so that's a, a big thing about him is is his definition of freedom. And like he points out, if you're working in a corporation, you don't have very much freedom. Um, You're pretty much a slave. And in his like, when you're self-employed, for instance, you have a lot more freedom. Or if you're a like he 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 says in this book, he argues that uh, a cab driver has more freedom than you know a business executive or a CEO Um, because they they can they can weather certain they can weather certain stressors um, and they can they can quit if they if they're uh, if they come up against like it's kind of like the whistleblower mentality like if something's happening that you don't agree with well a cab driver can just quit and find another job someone who's entrenched in in an institution doesn't have that freedom there's all kinds of institutional and emotional considerations that come in to prevent someone from actually taking a, a, a heroic action so with FU money that's money that that you can um use to kind of shield yourself from the from the attacks of others for 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 your own heroic action. Mm-hmm. Uh unfortunately, you know, a lot of people don't have FU money or if they do don't use it for a noble purpose. Um so back, just back to, to Taleb, so he he he's relentless in his um uh, vituperation of, uh, of people he he sees as um, just completely unethical and th- those who produce more harm for for other people than they do for themselves and who who actively, who actively structured their lives in order to put the the harm onto other people and to avoid it for themselves. And just as an example of the kind of humorous uh, humorous way that he takes down, people like this i want to read uh, this paragraph so and for those who think that academia is quieter and an emotionally relaxing transition after the volatile and risk-taking business life a surprise when in action new problems and scares emerge every day to displace and eliminate the previous day's headaches resentments and conflicts a nail displaces another nail with astonishing variety but academics, particularly in social science, seem to distrust each other. They live in petty obsessions, envy, and icy cold hatreds, with small clubs, with, with small snubs developing into grudges, fossilized over time in the, lonely, if, in the loneliness of the transaction with a computer screen and the immutability of their environment. Not to mention a level of envy I have almost never seen in business. My experience is that money and transactions purify relations ideas and abstract matters like recognition and credit warp them creating an atmosphere of perpetual r- rivalry i grew to find people greedy for credentials nauseating repulsive and untrustworthy commerce business levantine souks those not large scale uh, though not large scale markets and corporations are activities and places that bring out the best in people making them, uh, making most of them forgiving, honest, loving, trusting, and open-minded. As a member of the Christian minority in the Near East, I can vouch that commerce, particularly small commerce, is the door to tolerance, the only door, in my opinion, to any form of tolerance. It beats rationalizations and lectures. Like anti-fragile tinkering, mistakes are small and rapidly forgotten. So that is, again, an encapsulation of this idea of decentralization. And uh, the scale of systems, like he's the guy that said, I, I quoted it on a different show when he's talking about political systems. He's all about scale. So things that will work on one scale won't work in other scales. So he often says, for instance, that he he for for president he votes libertarian, state level he votes Republican, um, county level he votes uh, Democrat, and then um, like city level he votes. Uh, what was it like? Socialist, and then in his in his family, he's communist. Um, so there's things that like the, that there's things that work on on certain levels that don't work on higher levels, like I just said. So for the for the village-based kind of community, it's very decentralized. It's to have a close-knit community or village, and then um, and to ha- to give that as much independence as possible, mm-hmm. because that's where things work. That's where the that's where the people you actually interact with are. And when, when you're so far away from a distant central authority, that, that central authority has no, um, no familiarity with you. There's no, there's no connection. It's, it's a totally distant relationship. So what does that person, what does that group, what does that institution know about your community, your village, and what will they actually do for you? Well, chances are not very much. And that's kind of what history shows is that central, big central governments don't really care much about the. The, the tiny villages they're doing their own thing with their own purposes and it's the people that are actually living in the village that are concerned about their local concerns and so in in like a, a monarchist system it was it would be the people that appeal to the to the monarch to the king to actually get the the central government in essence to to do to do something for them but uh, so the the king was kind of a um, <clears throat> a person acting on behalf of the little people but you don't get that very often in in central governments, and and the central government necessitates that kind of that kind of system because it's not decentralized. If you just cut that out of this, out of the equation, and um, like I think he'd he'd prefer going back to like the the Greek system of cities, independent city states, to have it as as local and manageable as possible, and then to mm-hmm. to interact with other city states on that level um incidentally that's what he's kind of arguing for uh in the recent lebanon crisis because he's uh, he's lebanese and so he's been uh he's been talking with a lot of people in lebanon and and uh telling them just how how well acknowledging how idiotic their their system has been and how how much of a um, just a pain in the ass the the central government has been in Lebanon, and how little that they, how little good that they've done, and how much massive, um, you know, fraud and corruption and mismanagement and incompetence, ineptitude they're responsible for. So um, that's just a little bit about um, Talib himself and how he applies it. Just one one other thing he like he talks about in the book how everything that he writes about. And he makes it a point to to do this. Is everything everything he writes about is something that's come from his personal experience? And he said he's like, for example, he says he'd be guilty if he if he were to have to go to the library and do research to make a point in the book um because that would be false all the things he writes about are things that he was actually interested in and so it doesn't need to go and find the source for it and it's like oh well, and that's that's what really annoys me about academic work is that when you and when you're reading academic books you can tell that these people are doing it you know they, they just the way they write and then the way they set up their footnotes it's like oh, this is how alan dershowitz did it there was a scandal you know back in the day when he wrote one of his books and then Found a manuscript where he's telling a uh, you know his research assistants, oh, find the source for this, and, and you know find find how you can support this point. And academics do that all the time. It's yeah. just like they they have a point, and then then oh, I'm going to look through the research literature and then see if there's something here I can use to support my point. It's like it's it's just uh, uh, it's pretty pathetic, I think. Um, it, whereas at least a guy like Talib has some. Um, um, some individuality indi- in the game. and and skin in the game. Yeah, well, if you if you're interested in something, you learn on it. You learn it because you are interested in learning it, and it becomes part of you, and then you can speak about it from yourself. Expect, especially if it's from uh, from experience, and and then the, and that's what comes out of it. And and you can see it in the result because he's very he is a character, right? He's he's not like anyone else. Um, he's one of those few people in the in the i don't know if you i don't know if you'd call it like the academic world because i don't think he'd like being considered an academic but in, in the realm of thinkers he's one of those few that actually are actually have their own individuality and you can tell it by reading it like there's he's got his own style and it's not only not only um interesting and um enlightening it's actually entertaining to read as well and and that that's because, um, because of the way he's written, because of the way he writes, and because of the, the kind of principles that, uh, that guide him in his writing just a little bit. About right. It.
0: It's well, he is really scathing in his rebuke of a lot of academics. And I think a lot of it is because of that fraudulent element that you're, you're discussing as this, this amount of hubris and um, self-serving uh, entitlement that kind of goes into a lot of these bigwig academics, because clearly he's, he admires intellectuals. He admires the intellect. He just doesn't he doesn't like fraud you know that's that and that's the one example that he provides is of this financial guru uh who you know some economist at at yale who wrote all of these you know these arcane texts about probability and statistics and how to you know hedge your bets and all all of this stuff and then um when the guy was he he was he had this opportunity to take a different job at harvard Mm -hmm. and one of his um colleagues was like you know he didn't know what to do and one of his colleagues was like well why don't you just use the you know all of the statistics and everything that you've been using for years you know to to predict all these different things and then the guy said hey come on now this is serious (laughs) right (laughs) and now it's my paycheck on the line this is serious i can't use that stuff i just made it all up i don't know if it actually works you know it's that level of fraudulence that you can tell it just... Like you said, it boils his blood, and it's that's why it's so funny and it's so refreshing to read uh, Taleb's work is because he is he's just at their throats, and that's why he even devotes a part of his book to why he had to become a bodybuilder. Yeah. is because he was getting so many death threats after he you know successfully predicted the 2008 crash, and then went out and started you know just uh, dropping names and all that stuff. He he, had, he became a bodybuilder.
2: Well, that reminds me of a, a, another story that he. Gave about a very famous scientist that he's friendly with. And he he becomes intimates with a lot of different types of characters, uh, established book writers, um, this famous scientist that he doesn't name, uh, people, individuals who are uh, in the working class. He's, uh, he's a real student of, of nature and character, mm-hmm. and that really comes across. But what he says about this, uh, this scientist is that Every week, uh, the guy looks at information that's being said or not said about him. Uh, so, so the half of his work is not necessarily the research into science into his field, but kind of protecting his reputation. You know, why why didn't uh, why wasn't this other scientist um, acknowledging my accomplishments when he got an award? why, Why is my name not being mentioned in this uh, in this new study that's come out? So there's this incredible amount of uh, energy and emotion that Talib sees as fragile, as uh, unnecessarily self-important and and weak uh, that he'll get into when he discusses uh, the Stoics and the works of Seneca, for instance, uh, who took an approach that was much more, um, at the very least, robust, uh, but not weak in a in a self important way, and not kind of vulnerable to the uh, you know the slings and arrows of uh, of ego trampling information or or rumor. So he's he's really wonderful that way. You get a sense that uh, he he knows himself and he's unapologetic for his uh, points of view because they were they're learned. Uh, they're, they're, they come of hard-earned experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I wanted to get back to a, an earlier analogy of this taxi driver as an example of, um, of an anti-fragile uh, individual in, in the kind of uh, more mundane sense of, of being a worker. Uh, so Taleb gives this example. He compares the taxi driver to this kind of personnel manager who, uh, who has a very stable... Existence in a government or a, a kind of a, an established corporate atmosphere for many decades. And when it's seen that his position is no longer um, needed or there are cutbacks due to centralization in a particular government, he finds himself in his mid-50s as a middle manager, you know, completely vulnerable and fragile when he's let go where the, you know, the taxi driver who essentially works for himself and may have periods of ups and downs and may on the surface have this position or job that seems to be uh, fragile is actually uh, more stable uh, because he, he's already kind of learned the ropes for himself of, of exactly how much he has to do and where he has to go to make his buck uh, farming people from one side of town to the other. So uh, another point that's being made here, which I think is quite useful, is you know, on the surface of things, what may seem to be quite stable for us uh, from the day-to-day, uh, predictable, uh, mundane, um, routine, uh, is actually in the long run can be quite fragile uh, and subject to uh, the black swans that we mentioned a little earlier. Where finding a more kind of independent, self-reliant uh, route in, in one's thinking, in one's doing, in one's making a living, in one's relationships affords a person this, you know, the possibility for a greater amount of you know, uh, muscle, a greater amount of will exercised in directions based on one's own um, uh, thinking and, and being uh so that was really uh quite interesting to me as an analogy uh because most of us you know let's face it we're stuck in these kind of very nine to five routine positions for lack of the knowledge or the impetus uh to to strike out on our own in some way um for fear that it's riskier and talib is saying no uh it's only it may only seem riskier on the surface of things um, because it's uncharted territory because you're kind of relying more on your wits to, to engage in the environment, engage with other people, engage with your own capacity. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that was another uh, really interesting part of the book. I thought, yeah. Like the example
0: with the French uh, authors, that a lot of them would just get jobs as waiters, and so this is the kind of the barbell strategy. They have that job as a waiter. They they just leave it. Or there were waiters, and then there were other like uh, diplomats or sinecure, um, which was some kind of a French uh, official or something just very low level. You go to work, you just leave it there. You come back home, and then you write books, you know, and then you that's your uh, that's your the opposite end of your barbell it's a little bit risky you're not you you know you're not you're you're not you don't have f u money so you can't just say whatever you want but i mean you get to engage in something that is fulfilling and interesting and you know mind expanding that uh is much better than just being um, like one of these fragilista policymakers that he describes. That are uh, he has a section where he talks about trying to go to lunch, you know, trying to go to lunch with somebody like this, somebody who's just so consumed with the work that they have to do, and that you know they just um, they just have that dead, soulless look in their eyes. Um, you know, somebody who lives in this position that where you know if something bad were to happen, if if there were any kind of volatility, they have Almost all downside to this, whereas these people who are in these positions, you know, like the like the French author, like the taxi cab driver, you know, they 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 might feel like they don't have a solid ground, you know, like they don't. They don't feel like they're as um, robust, I guess. You know, just uh, in terms of, you know, what do you do for a living? Oh, I, I'm a policymaker. Like, oh wow, that guy's really made a name for himself. But in objective uh, terms, like this guy who's working as a taxi driver or who is working as a waiter and writing books on the side, they're they're more anti fragile, and they have more opportunity for um, heroism, for development, and for you know being exposed to stressors that will make them more intelligent, stronger, give them a better quality of of life, if, if they're able to um, utilize it properly.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, you've mentioned, or we've mentioned Fragilistas various numerous mm-hmm. times so far, so I want to read what exactly is a Fragilista. Talibrates, in short, the Fragilista, medical, economic, social planning, is one who makes you engage in policies and actions, all artificial, in which the benefits are small and visible, and the side effects potentially severe and invisible. So that's the short example. Um, He writes, this is in a section where simple is more sophisticated. So he writes, A complex system, contrary to what people believe, does not require complicated systems and regulations and intricate policies. The simpler, the better. Complications lead to multiplicative chains of anticipated effects. Because of opacity, an intervention leads to unforeseen consequences, followed by apologies about the unforeseen aspect of the consequences. Then to another intervention to correct the secondary effects, leading to an explosive series of branching unforeseen responses, each one worse than the preceding one. So this is uh, uh, Thomas Sowell that's one of his points too that he comes back to again and again. So, skipping ahead a bit on this subject of fragilista's, this is one example. Um, the reader can get a hint of the central problem we face with top down tampering with political systems or simpler or similar complex systems. Um, for example, the fragilista makes the economy the fragilista mistakes the economy for a washing machine that needs monthly maintenance or misconstrues the properties of your body for those of a compact disc player. Adam Smith himself made the analogy of the economy as a watch or clock that once set in motion continues on its own, but I am certain he did not quite think of matters in those terms, that he looked at the economy in terms of organisms, but lacked a framework to express it, for Smith understood the opacity of complex systems as well as their interdependencies, since he developed the notion of the invisible hand. But alas, unlike Adam Smith, Plato did not quite get it. Promoting the, well mo- the well-known the well metaphor of the ship of state, he likens a state to a naval vessel, which, of course, requires the monitoring of a captain. He ultimately argues that only f- men fit to be captain of this ship are philosopher kings, benevolent men with absolute power who have access to the form of the good. And once in a while... Uh, and once in a while, one hears shouts of "Who is governing us?" As if the world needs someone to govern it. Um, so, in that section, he, this is on um, on the difference between anti-fragile and fragile systems, organic and inorganic systems, because organic systems are are not machines. Um, that there are there's an important difference. So, if you look at a human body, it's not just a washing machine; it's actually because a washing machine is fragile it needs maintenance it uh, it breaks down over time it doesn't get better with stress it actually it actually wears down with stress you need to replace parts the the body it's the body is self Uh, self-repairing and it's anti-fragile in the sense that it actually gets better with minor stressors certain types of stressors so there's an important difference between the the artificial things that we create the machines that we create and our bodies which are much more than uh than those types of machines that uh, that are the product of human creativity but not just bodies complex systems any complex system so there's you know culture the economy things like that so he is um, so, well, it's clear from the, the quotes that we've read and what we've talked about that he's not a fa- not in favor of these kind of top-down, centralized approaches. And um, I just want to read one sentence and then get a bit into it. He writes, For the economy to be anti-fragile and undergo what is called evolution, every single individual business must necessarily be fragile, exposed to breaking, evolution needs organisms or their genes to die when supplanted by others in order to achieve improvement or to avoid reproduction when they are not as fit as someone else so this is it's a it's kind of a central point that he makes about the economy and about uh, about businesses is that the reason for instance that uh, the the restaurant economy will flourish is because of the vulnerability and the fragility of any individual restaurant Business and people who are familiar with the restaurant industry know this: is that restaurants close down, go bankrupt all the time, and it's kind of the the foolhardy, like, uh, um, courage or stupidity of of the people that want to get into the, the yeah the restaurant business, thinking, oh, it won't happen to me. It's it's because of that that you actually get um, a thriving restaurant business, is because you need people willing to take those risks. Um, because a lot of them will fail, and you need those failures in order to to get uh, to to actually innovate. That's the that's the thing about innovation is innovation needs failure. You need the. You need the stressor of failing in order to create that energy for innovation, um, that need for innovation. Um, and if you if you take that out of the equation, let's say you have this this thriving kind of restaurant business where, where all these biz, all these restaurants are going out of business, and and you get the few that are doing well, and then they go bust, and then it's this constantly churning machine, right, where where of rising and falling, and you know people. Getting thrown to the sharks, and others, you know, getting get, getting great success, and that's kind of a a symbol of the, the whole kind of uh well, of of a, an entire economy. But now let's say you have a central planner that comes in and says, "Okay, well, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to make sure that the, you know that that these small businesses don't fail, and I'm, and we're going to make it stable. So we're going to have one restaurant chain, right, that's going to dominate the entire restaurant scene. We're not going to allow any any individual entrepreneurs to open up their own restaurant." And so you get this centralized, um, like he'd call it, Soviet-style cafeteria system, which the best food you're going to get is going to be, um, you know, crap. It's gonna, it's not going to be edible. It's just going to be boring. There's not going to be any innovation because the the innovation actually comes from that entrepreneurial spirit in that industry. And when you get the when you get the top-down centralized approach, it takes it takes. It, it eliminates the possibility of that taking place. So when you have like these these government-controlled monopolies, now there's no there's no reason for innovation, and there's no um, there's no motivation for innovation. So that's that's why you that's why everyone hates. Um, well, if you look at government-controlled monopolies, they usually have piss poor products and services because and that's the reason because there is no competition because there's no there's no impetus for anyone to actually come up with there's no reason for anyone to come up with anything better because they've got these cushy jobs right they they've got their their stability insured by the by the central authorities so why do anything on top of that there's there's no reason and of course it's a dumb reason um ideally everyone should be you know striving to do the best at all times but that's just not the way that things actually work um if you actually take out that centralized system if you take that out of the equation then you're left with the with the restaurant industry as it actually should and naturally would operate and that's a success. It's a success despite all of the individual failures, because you need those failures in order to have the the system as a whole work and to to actually get the benefits of of that system. And um, so, I, I'm not familiar with his with all of his kind of theorizing on on uh, localism and kind of how how th- how things would be better structured. But I think one of the um, well, one of his concerns is to make it so that that system, um, that system with its ups and downs and with its failures and successes, can work as well as possible with, with as little of the downside as possible. But you can never get rid of the downside. Like you can, you can never get rid of the idea that a business can fail, mm-hmm. because that that is essential. And it's the same thing on it's the same thing everywhere on an every different level, um, because there's this kind of fractal um, fractal structure to the way things are and if you look at the human body and just life in general you have the life system you have different species you have different groups you go down to the human level you've got societies and cultures of of humans and then you've got small groups villages of 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 people and then you've got uh, a family unit and then you've got your body and your body is composed of individual cells and the cells have their individual like proteins and different macromolecules and things inside of it and on every level there are there are stresses that cause um that cause this well it's like cells die you know um when you when you get when when you um, he uses the example for instance of um um conditioning your body to to poisons for instance so when you condition your body to poison whatever is actually going on if you're like if you're killing off the the weak proteins in in your cells and then you, it's kind of like uh um, Bacterial, what's it called? Bacterial resistance. Um, the so the the strong ones live on and reproduce in your body, and that makes your body stronger. Same thing like with your cells. You know, if you, if you're working out, you basically destroy and, and rip your your muscle fibers so that they so that they grow back and uh, and rebuild themselves on a on a stronger you know uh, at a stronger level. And it's this process that's going on all the time. And to to deny that, or to try to fix it, you know, to think he, to to have the hubris that you can come in and and fix something like uh, fix something like nature that's so far out of your grasp is just uh, it's just the the height of arrogance, and that's exactly what. You know, central planners everywhere are—they're just totally arrogant to think that they can, that they can succeed at this endeavor when it's, um, it's completely impossible. And so it's, it's, it's just a waste of time. You shouldn't even, shouldn't even go there. You should instead try to just understand and and let things happen, and maybe try to slightly guide them, but don't try to, don't try to rewrite the system because it knows better than you do. Well, yeah. he said
2: a, a couple of things about entrepreneurship that I thought were quite interesting because he, he says that. Uh, You know, there should, I mean, he celebrates the individual's kind of um, attempt at at trying to do something and even suggests at one point that there should be this, you know, entrepreneurs' recognition day in in light of the fact that people are uh, putting themselves at risk um, and that other people are uh, in a position to learn Mm -hmm. from the failures of other people. And he says that that is an anti fragile kind of characteristic as well uh not that we want to see other people uh fail at things and he's very uh he's very kind of um you you do get a sense that he's he does he's rooting for people he's not he's not a selfish individual all of this is a kind of uh, act of generosity on his part. It's to share what he's learning. At the same time, you, learn, you know, like you said, failure is definitely part of the equation. Um, and and failing at something in an attempt to be innovative and to take risks and to make things better uh, are also part of the equation. So he moves on with this point uh, at one point and and gets into the idea that A lot of speculators, a lot of people who are in the markets um, are looking at what a lot of other people are doing and doing exactly the opposite. And when I read that, I thought about this recent bit of news of this uh, very well-known investor recently named Ray Dalio. So the alternative news sphere has been filled with articles of late about how Ray Dalio uh, believes that there's going to be a very big recession – and uh and sometime between now and march thinks that the stock market is going to dip by some untold percentage uh so he's basically in the midst of all of this kind of you know news about the stock market doing so well and 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 employment being so high and the economy's never been so great he is betting a billion and a half dollars i mean really huge sums of money uh, against what everybody in the mainstream news has been saying for the past year. Um, and people are paying attention to him. So I thought about Ray Dalio, and then a few pages later, uh, he talks about Ray Dalio as, as, this, as this anti-fragile predictor of a hedge fund who, for the past 20 years, is kind of this icon of uh, financial uh, success and, and prediction. Uh, so we can learn from the the, the failures of others. Uh, it's a painful process if you have any amount of empathy for the individual who screwed up in some area. But it uh, it is also uh, a teach a teachable moment, uh, a time where you know that lesson. If it if it isn't learned by the individual who's suffering the error, uh, or the suckers and turkeys, as as Taleb would say it, uh, who are out there in the markets listening to all the bad advice and moving in one herd in one direction and doing pretty much all the same thing, you know, you can uh, benefit from in some way through that barbell idea that you talked about before Corey, you know, you can, you can look at the, the riskier side of, of investment or doing things with your time and, and, kind of balance it out with the much more paranoid and conservative and well-known things that will leave you at least stable and robust and, uh, you know, able to withstand any kind of um, disappointments. Um, but there, there is a kind of a, an approach to all of this that he talks about. And I was going to read this little bit here. He says that you can control fragility a lot more than you think. So let us refine in three points since detecting anti-fragility or actually smelling it as fat Tony will show us in the next few chapters, Fat Tony is this guy who, who it's his, it's Taleb's Brooklyn friend, the guy who's probably kind of connected to the mob. He hangs around all day. He eats a lot. He, he meets with people, he gets information, he makes investments and he literally smells, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the fragility in people, he, he, he sniffs them out. He sees what they're made of, what their character is, uh, what their character consists of, what their vulnerabilities are. Um, and, uh, you can look at it in one of two ways. You can look at it as, well, the guy is somewhat of a, a predator, uh, or you can look at it as, you know, someone who is a student of, of nature, of, of character, of, uh, of his environment, of people who who are doing things around him, and and the success and relative uh, failures of the choices that they make. So, getting back to that, he says, since detecting antifragility or actually smelling it, as Fat Tony will show us in the next few chapters, is easier, much easier than prediction and understanding the dynamics of events. The entire mission reduces to the central principle of what to do to minimize harm and maximize gain from forecasting errors, that is, to have things that don't fall apart or even benefit when we make a mistake. We do not want to change the world for now, leave that to the Soviet Harvard utopists and and other fragilistas. We should first make things more robust to defects and forecast errors, or even exploit these errors, making lemonade out of the lemons. As for the lemonade, it looks as if history is in the business of making it out of lemons. Anti-fragility is necessary, is necessarily how things move forward under the mother of all stressors, called time. Further, after the occurrence of of an event, we need to switch the blame from the inability to see an event coming, say a tsunami, an Arabo-Semitic spring or similar riots, an earthquake, a war, or a financial crisis, to the failure to understand anti-fragility. Namely, quote, Why did we build something so fragile to these types of events? End quote. Not seeing a tsunami or an economic event coming is excusable. Building something fragile to them is not. So this is getting back to the earlier point you were making, uh, Corey, which is that we don't have to have the exact time and date and, and specific um, black swan that's going to come and wreck things or, or at least make things more challenging. Um, but we can anticipate the, uh, the vulnerability in something um, that we're responsible for, that we have some control of, uh, that we can empower ourselves to make stronger, to, to add redundancy to, uh, which is a word and a term that he uses at one point. Uh, redundancy is good. Reinforcing something. Uh, instead of having one flashlight in your house in the event of a, uh, a, a blackout, have three flashlights have, have one in, in each room, uh, instead of having, um, you know, uh, a store of uh, of food um, of only one type in one place. Have food in, in two or three different caches uh, of of different varieties, mm-hmm. and some you can even barter or exchange with. Uh, just to give an analogy, so uh, redundancy is a, is another big kind of antifragile concept. Uh, something that um, something that reinforces the the strength of a uh, of an anticipated um, uh, failure or weakness
0: no I think uh, there's just a number of of really good points uh, to touch on there um, one thing that i i'm thinking of I, I remember him he was writing about the era that we 're living in right because there's we're definitely in this kind of a strange moment in history a lot of fragilistas have been planning and you know a lot of interventions we kind of live in a powder keg uh, a lot of people are made fragile by pharmaceuticals by drugs um, a lot of problems in the economy are just keep kind of being put on the back burner and like the analogy that he uses of fire management you know if you if you stop the you know small debt debris um, from being burned up in small brush fires, then you're just piling up more and more debris. And then when the fire does come, it's going to be a massive black swan event. Um, and we definitely, it seems like we're, we are in an age of that, that level of fragility just in, you know, in terms of people's psychology And our uh, physiology, you know, just taking pill after pill for every sort of ailment and all of this, you know, fake food made by uh, interventionists, naive interventionists who thought that they could genetically modify the food supply and genetically modify everything and there would be no adverse effects. We could just, we could tell nature to do it better than she wants to do it. And I think overall uh, that it's i would highly recommend reading this book and in, in fact probably reading this entire the entire series i think that we we should probably do a show on every one of his books because it's um he's a very unique thinker and he presents he has a lot of heuristics and a lot of tools that we can't really cover just in one show and uh, just reading the book you 're going to be overwhelmed, you know if you haven't read it already uh, by the sheer number of tools and heuristics and ways of thinking about situations and just little little embellishments that he puts on everyday situations that you can use um to enhance the options that you have in your own life, you know there's that's he's all about options, you know the more options that you have, the more anti fragile you have because say this doesn't work, boom, I've got this option and and that, and then he also has you know he speaks of them in financial ways too, but in that sense, I was wondering, did you guys have anything else that you wanted to
1: say about the book here? Just one point, one overall point to relate it to some previous shows that um Talib really did a service with kind of coming up with this word and this concept um, to be able to kind of give the name to something that we've that we've all known on some level exists, but now that we have the name for it, we can do more with it. You know, mm-hmm. understand it better and uh, and and integrate it more into um, you know our uh, the part of our lives that we use our thinking for as opposed to just doing. Mm-hmm. And it relates back to um, well to multiple of our shows, but in in I think the most. Um, the one that sticks out for me is just the Dabrowski's theory theory of positive dis- disintegration, which is premised on this idea that mm-hmm. that there is a, a, a something more in a lot of humans more than resiliency. That there's something about the the shocks and the stresses of, in this case, of um, what's often considered. Um, mental illness so so extreme neuroses and psychoneuroses as dobrowski calls it that can tear a person down but out of which something um something stronger and greater and on a completely different level can emerge you know like a like a phoenix but actually more than a phoenix because he uses the example of the the phoenix the phoenix just comes back as a phoenix over and over Mm -hmm. more like a a positive hydra Mm -hmm. you know where where the something is actually transformed into something higher and greater, and that there is there's actually a whole a whole other level of this process and this concept that goes on that people are unaware of um, on the level of psychological growth that kind of gets into gets into the deepest aspects of what religions hint at and and uh and present as a possibility that there is there is something about like human nature and the human spirit that is that has this anti-fragility built into it that can that can lead to evolution on a on a scale that is um unacknowledged and un, unforeseen and un, invisi- and invisible to most people at most times, but it's uh but it's something there. It's something it's something with within human nature. And I think that's something that uh that for those uh for those to whom that is kind of a, a call and has some resonance. That is that is an idea uh, to be pursued and uh, and put into practice in one's life. And uh, yeah, we'll get into that in other shows.
0: Well, yeah, I, that's interesting. You bring up the um, the Hydra and the Phoenix because I I really I, I love these books and I just want to see. I would love to see something a little bit more explicitly. Um, like mythological, you know what I'm saying? Because that's where this kind of fits in, in my mind. He's, he's kind of taking the world of action and he's describing it and kind of breaking it down. And he's, you know, getting frustrated by academics who um, it's interesting though, but they they just, he's like, they're allergic to the idea of anti-fragility that, and I mean, we've, uh, Clearly, Dabrowski probably ran into that throughout his entire career as a you know a psychologist trying, right? and still that the whole idea of the theory of positive disintegration didn't really take on. Now we have um, post-traumatic growth, but mm-hmm. that's that's slightly. It's, it's in similar lines. It's related, related, but, um, that's still kind of its own niche little field, but anti-fragility is this concept, um, that you can, you know, add to your lexicon and then you can slot all these other different things into it. So it's kind of the, the mother, the mother idea, the mother concept of what benefits from volatility. And it's nice to be, you know, he's got these very simple ways to, to see if you measure up, you know, in different areas of your life. You know, are, are you a fragileista here or are you, you know, um, anti-fragile there? But that, other than that, that's it for this week. We hope that you tune in next time. if you like this show, please subscribe, hit like, and have a great week, everyone.
2: Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. See you later.